On this episode of The Live Life, we're talking about the risk of delivering live event productions and more on The Live Life. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by SDVOE. The platform for networked AV. This is The Live Life, episode 36, The Risky Business of Live Event Productions. Welcome to The Live Life, where we bring influential guests of the live event community to discuss the uh, topics related to the selling, planning, designing, producing, and delivering live event productions. I'm your host, Wallace Johnson, where you can find me on Twitter at WallaceCTS. And today we're discussing the risky business of delivering live events. Uh, joining me to discuss this topic is Mr. Scott Carroll of Take One Insurance. He is the program director and executive vice president with Take One, which is a division of the U.S. Risk Insurance Group. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Wallace, thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you for having me. No, no. Thanks for coming aboard. So um, let's just jump right into the topic of discussion here. You know, live event safety is one of those things that's probably not discussed enough, um, especially on job site, um, whether it's, you know, corporate ballroom events, outdoor events, festivals, concerts. Um, you know, we've seen some pretty uh tragic, you know, uh, trust systems and things come down and collapse and always kind of brings a reminder to the industry. Um, but what I want to talk about is kind of just the improvements you've seen safety-wise um, over the past couple of years in the live event space. What, what are the things that you've seen um, be a proactive or even a reactive approach that's uh, brought improvements to the safety measurements that the company should take in live events? It's a it's a great question and frankly a, a terrific topic they're cho- choosing to focus on. Um, I, I tend to agree with you that there's not enough attention properly paid to this and it's an industry, it's an area where uh, uh, more and more attention uh, it, it does need to be paid as a result of some of the more high profile events that have occurred and that continue to occur. And frankly, for those of us skeptics in, in the world, we believe will continue to occur even more frequently in the future. Um, uh, but we'll get into some of those a, a little bit later. Uh, To your question about some of the live event safety improvements, uh, one of the things that I think is fascinating about this industry and and something that I love specifically about it is that it ever evolves and and the people within it ever evolve. And what they try to do is constantly focus on on what they can learn from recent events. So in a sense, for, for maybe some of the more skeptics in the room, uh, you might say, well, they're reacting, as you just pointed out, Wallace, they're reacting to things that, that occur as opposed to preventing things from occurring. And, and, and I, would, I would contend, uh, yes, to a certain extent that's correct, but, but by the same token, um, the fact that they are reacting uh, sort of allows us to limit those things uh, uh, to a very small scale where they could become rampant. Let me, let me give you a couple examples. Um, one of the significant safety changes occurred after the West Warwick, Rhode Island uh, nightclub disaster. I think it was called the Station Nightclub in, in Rhode Island. Um, uh, this was a, an event that occurred in February of 2003. Uh, the, the 
primary event where multiple people died as a result of smoke inhalation that occurred after a pyrotechnics um, uh, was shot off within the venue and soundproofing material on the walls uh, ignited uh, and the people could not get out uh, in time. So it was a huge tragedy. Well, as a result, uh, there's been a lot of study and a lot of analysis of of soundproofing material, of flame retardant materials, of pyrotechnics inside venues uh, that today, uh, for instance, uh, the same pyro effect that occurred in West Warwick, Rhode Island years and years ago, uh, you can now do that same effect without any flame at all. And so those are evolutions that occur. Um, you know, that I think that's an example of some evolutions that occur as a result of a tragedy. Some other things I think you'll see from, uh, there, there are certain seminal moments in the industry, one of which was the Indiana State Fair stage collapse. Uh, that occurred in August of 2011. Uh, this was a roof structure that twisted uh, as a result of, of a major wind event that came through, um, and that structure came down and, and unfortunately killed, uh, I believe it was, it was five, six, or seven people. Um, from that, um, I think that a lot of things have evolved in terms of severe weather action plans that now occur or high wind action plans. These are things that are studied and done at events sort of on a dry, hot day or a dry, uh, a dry day, they, they, these, are, these are plans made by the, uh, the event promoters, the producers, the planners, the uh, technicians on site that they do sort of in advance. If these things happen, here is what our reaction will be. And uh, those are taking place more often. Um, I've got a couple others, I'll, I'll make them quickly. Uh, in venues today, if you go into a stadium or you go in to see a, a sport event, uh, I find it to be very rare that the venue doesn't spend time on the jumbotrons or through PA announcements to explain what should happen if there is an event inside that venue, where you need to, how you need to exit. They, they describe it. Um, uh, they show visuals of it uh, on the jumbotrons. Those didn't occur uh, as much before uh, as those things occur now uh, to, you know, and, and you could say that they are as a result of tragedies that have occurred, sure. Uh, but you could also say that we're just getting smarter at um, live event safety thinking and, 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 and planning. When it comes to, you know, what you're seeing, you know, today with companies that are looking, you know, to get policies from an organization like Take One, when you're reviewing those details and you're looking at, you know, some of the things that companies are doing, like what are the, the things that live event companies are still, you would say, doing poorly from an observation standpoint that, you know, we need to improve it? Um, you know, there still are companies out there that don't think through uh, some of the safety events. For instance, some of them uh, that might hang a roof system or, or rig a roof system uh, in an outdoor event uh, don't think about uh, the high wind action plan, so to speak. So uh, as you can imagine, I'll try and describe a visual here. You've got a roof structure and then to help with uh, a, a visual they'll put screens on the roof structure on three walls of the roof structure. Well, you can imagine when a wind event occurs, that can become a, a very different aerodynamic uh, 
scenario um, than when it's a it's it's a dry day with no wind. Um, so you know some thoughts are what what would you do if a high wind event comes through and forces uh, and put lateral forces upon that now what could be sort of a three wall tent um, should you take those skins down to allow the wind to blow through um, there are certain companies out there that still don't think that those things through um, uh, you know, in, in venues, for instance, do all venues think about what happens if an active shooter comes in and what do we do? What's our reaction? Do they train for it? Um, you know, then there's, uh, there's companies, and, and this is always true in any industry, not certainly, uh, it's not rampant in the live event industry. In fact, all of what I'm talking about, I think are more rare than they are prevalent. Um, but, uh, you know, some companies cut corners by, uh, by not putting the money into um, uh, safety engineering checks on their gear, or on on um, on uh, uh, lifting equipment for um, uh, for hanging things in the air. So there's there's various things that some people will will do. Um, we do some checks on you know as we uh, as we ask questions relative to understanding the nature of a company's business. We'll ask, for instance, it's a very common question, if there's a safety manual, we will ask to look at those safety manuals. So someone who doesn't have one, uh, that's automatically going to go into our thinking um, that, that may not support our ability to, to, to write that a company. Um, if they're unaware of certain things in the industry that should become common knowledge in our minds, if you're in the live event world, um, Things like uh, the event safety guide that has been put out by the Event Safety Alliance, for instance. Um, these are specific questions we will ask on an application. If they say no, they're not aware, that puts a thought into my head about, um, uh, you know, about the level of awareness or focus on safety that, um, that I then question and will dig deeper with that particular potential insured. Uh, to understand uh, uh, sort of what is the nature of their of their thought process with regard to uh, live event safety because it's it's largely all about that it really is in the area that you touched on you know with the outdoor event and the the LED wall or screens you know hanging from you know the structure and kind of creating a, a, a three wall tent is there services out there that companies could hire a safety inspector? So they got this design, the client's paid all this money, they want to put in the equipment they expect for the show. But now there's a question of environmental safety and things that are going on that are above and beyond the scope of a typical um, live event company. They're, you know, they're AB guys or technical geeks. You know, So when it comes to the elements and, and, and wind resistance of the gear and all of that, you know, they may not have knowledge of that. Is, is there services out there that they could bring in to, you know, help them, you know, be comfortable with talking to the client about, Hey, we can't put these other two walls up. because We're going to have a safety issue. I know you paid for them. I know this is the look of the show, but here's professionals that can tell you why we can't do this. Well, there certainly are, uh, you know, a lot of engineering companies out there that could, could come in and do sort of a forensic analysis of the show site and sort of of the surroundings because, of course, you know, a, a show site that's surrounded by mountains would have a different wind effect than if they were, say, in a, in a flat green field where there was no mountain effect 
um, any distant away or no buildings or anything like that. There is, but whether or not that's financially um, logical is is sort of the question. Um, uh, for sure, there are companies today that uh, have outside engineers sort of check on things like the stresses that a particular aluminum truss structure could carry, or they um, uh, they uh, do uh, engineering tests upon pulley systems with regard to what's lifting and therefore holding um, um, uh, structures in the air. Um, and so many companies that do provide those uh, uh, those roof systems and those rigging systems uh, will do that. They will have them engineered and inspected. And of course, any permanent structure built, um, you know, that uh, depending upon the state requirements will have uh, potential engineering done. Uh, but on, on show site, if we put this to the practical, right, if we put this to there's so many live events that are going on today because, as you know, Wallace, the the industry, especially the music industry, but but the viewing public um, uh, rampant appetite for uh, look viewing things live, right? Watching things live has just gone up markedly in the last uh, you know 15, 20 years. It, it, people want that experience and. Even in the downturn of the economy, the the live event world didn't really take too big of a hit with regard to shows going on and whatnot. I mean, it did take a hit, but not a huge hit because the voraciousness of the appetite of people wanting to see live events. Also, the music industry changed specifically. You know, music musicians no longer make money by selling records. They make money by selling seats. Mm -hmm. So... You know the the real uh, growth in in these events occurring um, has created the need for more specialized or more localized, I would call it, uh, safety attention. And so there are things, for instance, uh, on that skin skin idea with regard to the roof structure. What's what's happening much more prevalently than calling in a a, a high dollar engineer um, is you have weather monitoring services that are now much more economical and much more logical um, uh, for these companies to do. So they will hire a weather monitoring service that can pinpoint to the exact location of your site uh, and do weather monitoring that might go on for weeks or days before the event occurs. And uh, these weather monitoring services can uh, tell you, you know, you, you've got a wind event coming in or you've got uh, lightning within four miles of the area. You may want to start considering uh, some changes to your show site or and, and back to that skin, for example, they might know, you know, you're going to have a 20 mile an hour wind event uh, occurring an hour before your event. Uh, you may want to think about pulling those skins down or, you know, it's those mm -hmm. types of, of things. And quite frankly, the the at least for the customers that we represent, we like to believe and, and we do believe that many of them are extremely sophisticated. They've been in the field, they've done this before, and they understand that, you know, a 20 mile wind event hitting upon that, that screen is going to have a different effect as if the screen weren't down. So they're already making those judgments themselves. So um, those kinds of things I think are much more practical than calling in a high dollar engineering firm to sort of say, well, the, you know, Tell me about this structure specifically, you know, relative to say what would be a really a wind event. 
So I want to shift the conversation to talk, uh, get into the details of insurance. And so there's, you know, a number of insurance companies where, you know, we can insure our boats, cars, motorcycle, homes, they kind of bundle all of things, these things together. And you can also, you know, bundle your, you know, company insurance in that with what most companies have of general liability, uh, automobile, vehicle insurance, and workers' comp insurance. And so, you know, organization like Take One, um, specializes in live event industry. Tell me about some of the differences that comes into working with a specialized company versus just a, a general insurance company that does a, a large bundle of non-event-based services. That's a that's a fantastic question, to be honest. And, and I realize that I'm an insurance geek, and so uh, I, I get excited about, uh, about being able to talk about something like that. But um, there is a tremendous difference, and um, the, the, the primary difference is it, it all comes into the claims process, if you want to know the truth. It really happens after the point of sale, right? It's, it's when there is an, a, a, something that occurred that now needs to be settled. If you go to a generalist company, if, if, if your insurance agent places you with a generalist insurance company, one that isn't familiar with, A, the entertainment industry, that isn't familiar with uh, spectator liability, um, that isn't familiar with the sophistication of the, the gear, for example, that many of these audiovisual companies uh, contain, if they're not familiar with um, uh, sort of the exposures associated with independent contractors, et cetera, that, are, that do occur in this business, um, it, a, a, care, a company, an, a, an insured, can be exposed, um, and and they would not know that they're exposed until at the most critical time, which is which is at the uh, at the claims process. So so let me give you a couple of examples. I think it it it, it sort of helps. <coughs> Excuse me. If you're if you're an audiovisual company and and your main asset is your gear, and you've got hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of dollars of gear that you rent out to various shows throughout the world or throughout the country. And they can be indoor shows, they can be outdoor shows. They can be as simple as a corporate event um, or, or as complicated as a uh, outdoor festival where 200,000 people are gonna come through over a weekend. Um, if you're involved, you know, there's so many dynamics that can occur in a, in a show. Let's, let's use the festival as an example. There's so many dynamics that can occur. Um, first of all, it's a very busy site, and there there are people all over the place. Um, some are spectators, some are workers, but there's hundreds and maybe thousands of people that are involved. So you got to be worried about either spectator liability or participant liability. And carriers that are interested or or norm or used uh, used to dealing with those exposures uh, don't. Don't get worried about it. They know they know the things to look about to look for. They know the questions to ask. Um, uh, back to the gear, for instance, um, what what can happen in many instances? The gear can get lost, right? Because there's so much gear at a certain show, and and the show's taken down, and now the gear is being staged to be pulled back out and sent back to its uh, rightful owner's locations. Um, that gear can get mixed up, that gear can get lost, that gear can get stolen. These specialized insurance companies deal in that gear 
and they know, oh, there's been a theft ring involved with um, uh, with gear like this. We're going to, you know, and they're in, in, in conversation with other insurance companies that have found these uh, theft rings that have occurred. If you're dealing with a, with a generalist who doesn't deal in this space, they're not going to know those things. They're not going to know to investigate for the, uh, to find the gear or to, um, uh, yeah, to find the gear. Uh, they're not going to know to do that because they're just not in the space. Um, really, the specialists know the questions to ask. And, and one of the things that I think is so important for an insured, right, to, to know. An insured doesn't know what they don't know. They don't know the world of insurance. So when an insurance company is asking a question, and it's an insurance company that understands the exposure, that in a way can help that insured become a better insured by virtue of the, of the question being asked. So if I'm asking about severe weather action plans or high wind action plans for someone who's doing a greenfield show for the first time, um, they may not have thought about those things um, until the question is asked. A generalist company, a generalist company would, would not, maybe would not know to ask those questions. Thus, the insured isn't, uh, isn't sort of getting the right amount of input um, from the insurance company. And, and let's face it, an insurance company can be the difference, a good insurance company and good insurance can be the difference between a company staying in business and thriving after a tragedy and going out of business completely because of the tragedy. Um, you know, insurance has to be seen as more of a strategic decision. Um, and, and as a result, I mean, if you're, if you're buying a house, it's a strategic decision for your family. You want to go to a mortgage company that sort of understands your neighborhood, understands where you live, understands um, uh, sort of the nature of everything. You don't want to go to some other mortgage company that really doesn't understand the details behind, um, behind your location. It's a critical decision. Um, and, and as a result, I think you want the smartest players behind you. And so specialists really matters in claims, but, uh, it can also make you a better insured, uh, going forward. No, those are some great points. And, and I definitely agree with the, uh, with the mindset of it is a strategic decision because you want to limit your risk and exposure, um, and kind of circling deeper into that, you know, a lot of venues today, um, they have, uh, preferred or um, exclusive vendors that handle electrical services and rigging services for an event. So you'll have an AV company going into a venue. They have to work with a third party provider on the rigging or electrical. Um, everybody has to provide a proof of insurance to the venue uh, with a certain amount of general liability and workers comp in a situation like that where something happens on the event that's either related to the electrical aspect or the rigging um, aspect of the event, you know, the AV companies are looking at it saying, well, we hired these guys. Well, I'm sorry. We were told we had to work with these guys and they provided all of the services. Um, so it's on them or same thing with the electrical. Um, oh, sorry about that. Um, mm -hmm. so with that, 
are they exposed to any liability or claim um, that would would happen if there was a rigging accident in the venue, even though a third party installed it, but their AV is in the room, or are they fairly free and clear yeah. because they weren't responsible? Like that that discussion never happened. So I'm curious to what is you know the the true results when something does happen. Fortunately, we we haven't heard or seen many events in which something has. So, but in the case that it does, where does responsibility start to uh, lie in that process? You know, it's uh, it's a great question. I certainly understand the reason for asking the question, and and I hope I don't uh, uh, upset you or or any of your listeners uh, with this sort of a a, a non answer. But uh, it's very difficult to provide an answer to that question. Let me let me try and give you though some aspects of uh, what I think you're getting at there. You know, the, the, it, it depends on, so much of the answer to your question depends upon the nature of the accident or the nature of what results. Um, so uh, there are many circumstances where it's clearly defined that um, the responsibility, it's clearly defined that my responsibility on a given site is X. And I'm, it's very understood, but, but because of the nature of an accident that incurs, everybody is brought into that accident, even if you had nothing to do with it. So, right. um, uh, uh, an example might be that, um, someone, someone attending the event sits in a chair, uh, that was provided their seat. The chair breaks and they get severely hurt, uh, by, like broken back or, you know, something severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would tend to sue everybody. And you might just be the lighting contractor or the lighting uh, AV specialist at that point uh, that just, you know, really you had nothing to do with that, but you could be brought into it. So then it goes to the contract, the contract language. And I stress this with, with all of my customers, with all of my clients, the nature of the contracts are critical. Um, they are absolutely essential in that if, if you're sort of used to doing business on a handshake and, uh, you know, sort of, uh, this is a good old boy network sort of thing. Uh, it, that's pro- those days are, those days are done and really should be, um, uh, if, if you're a business that tries to operate that way, while, while more simple and, and, you know, 90% of your work can get done, it only takes that one job where there is no clarity as to whose responsibility it is uh, because no contract exists or the contract language is limited um, that you could be brought into something that you really shouldn't pay for. There are multiple situations out there where folks have paid for claims that or their insurance companies have ended up paying claims that they didn't feel they were responsible. And, um, you know, it, that's probably going to go on for a long, long time. I think in the, even in the West Warwick, Rhode Island nightclub uh, accident that we talked about uh, a, a few moments ago uh, in 2003, one of, the, one of the big entities that I think contributed to the um, um, settlements uh, was was Budweiser beer, and I I may be wrong on the on the name of the beer company, but it was a beer company primarily because it was a promotional evening 
relative to that beer company, but they had nothing to do with the pyrotechnics. They had nothing to do with the venue itself. So there's, there's many things out there that can occur that can bring you in. That's why, um, A, it's critical that you have insurance to help work through those things um, and to protect your or to, to look at your negligence. You, you're buying protection for when you're negligent on a particular site. That's what the general liability policy would respond to. Um, but the contracts really become sort of the critical component to determine whether or not you have a, a, a proper case to get to keep yourself out of trouble. Um, and uh, uh, I can't stress that enough. That's a, that's a very important and, and frankly, uh, something for your own protection that time should be spent on, uh, on those things to make sure that you're not brought into something that you shouldn't be. One of, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things to this question, Wallace, to be honest with you, that um, really brings in a lot of, of, of sort of outside thoughts that I'm not sure a lot of people think about. So there's things that are very common in our industry and very common in the, in the entertainment industry where additional insured status is provided to entities um, uh, that uh, that aren't necessarily evident to be involved in the in the event. So uh, let's use the Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas as an example. In that example, um, you know, the, the, you had uh, you had a, a, a festival or an, an, an activity that was occurring at a show site. That show site was owned by uh, a certain entity. Um, that entity wanted to be named as additional insured onto the um, uh, onto the insurance policy that was sort of focused on the event itself. Um, it's common that they would be added. Um, that entity was then had another owner, and it's common that the owner of that entity would want to be added as an additional insured. That happens in the industry, so you spread the liability exposures out broadly. Um, and, and now you've got a lot of potential where your insurance policy, because of adding those additional insureds, can extend beyond, uh, uh, beyond just uh, sort of what you're doing at that show site. And it's, uh, uh, those are critical things that I think happen in this industry every single day, it happens in multiple industries every single day. And I'm going to suggest to you that uh, uh, those are things that are going to be looked at much more closely going forward. Um, much more closely. Cross yeah. indemnity is a big thing now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very common thing. I mean, live event wise, I think every venue usually requires the certificate of insurance with, you know, venues named as the additionally insured, um, you know, on it, or even when they're cross running gear from another rental provider, they have to add them as the additionally insured, um, you know, for those project, uh, it's a start and end date element, but it's still for a specific project. Um, that they're working yeah, on. and very much so. And and I think uh, you know the Indiana State Fair stage collapse. At least that's my moniker of time and when I think that this happened. But what's now very prevalent, it was something I was mentioning at the end of my comments a minute ago, and that is cross indemnity. I think that that as a result of what happened in Indiana State Fair, where they sort of looked down the down the structure of what's going on at a particular event, they realized that a lot of the downstream vendors didn't really have insurance. They had no coverage of their own. They were just part of the promoter's coverage or part of uh, some other element's coverage. And 
um, what what sort of became evident is that there may not be enough insurance coverage for all the um, for all the issues out there. So the the state became responsible because it was the Indiana State Fair, right? And the state was worried about that. Well, I think that's a seminal moment in the industry to where cross indemnity has become, first of all, requiring everybody down the stream to now have insurance. That's changed to my mind in the entertainment world as a result of Indiana State Fair, at least according to the live event entertainment world. Um, so now even the lowest of, of, of vendor must have insurance to enter a site. That's, and I think that's a good thing that's come from the industry, not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but also cross indemnity. So if the promoter uh, is asked to add the venue as an AI, the promoter can also ask the venue to add them as an AI to the venue's policy, which is called cross indemnity. And it's something we much we very much incur we encourage because what you're asking for is uh, in in that case our AV company right we, Mr. Venue you've asked me for additional insured protection under my policy I understand why and I'm willing to provide it but I would like you to give me additional insured protection under your policy in case of your negligence if you've done something where you're negligent I I would like your insurance policy to sort of stand forward first um, and not just mine. And that cross indemnity wasn't as common as it is today. And something I know that we as a very large writer in this space, we encourage, we, we encourage all of our insureds to where they can get that cross indemnity. They can't get it every time, yeah. um, but it's much more prevalent than it used to be. So back to that earlier question in terms of the liabilities of the third-party electrical, third-party rigging teams. Like I say, the AV company is providing their insurance details and, and adding additional insurance to that component. Would it be a good best practice to start getting the electrical company to add the AV company and send that information back and the rigging company doing the same? Yes, if they can. Now, if, if, if they have any responsibility at all for bringing that rigging company or that electrical company to the site, they can get that pretty easily. Right. If the venue, however, has the responsibility for bringing that rigging or an electrical company to the site, um, they may not be willing, those electrical and rigging company may, may not be willing to provide cross-indemnity downstream because they're really not directly hired by those entities. Um, I see your point. I see. I see the nature of your question. Um, I think that uh, uh, you know that's just something that becomes a little bit more difficult to enact as a result of the contractual uh, sort of relationships of things. But uh, totally agree. Uh, totally, totally agree. Yeah. Like I say, that they're they're contracted typically with the venues. So totally understand. You know your answer in that in that scenario. But going back to when you responded to that. It seemed like the best practice to take away from working with those companies because everybody in the room is going to get called into a lawsuit potentially is have at least some type of documented contractual agreement of responsibilities with those uh, vendors that you're co-working with on those projects to understand who's responsible for what in a, in a contractual way. Yeah, very much so. And and uh, to to be honest, we write a lot of audiovisual companies that have rental gear, right? And so they rent out their gear. And one of the clauses that we put in our policy, which um, quite frankly is in most entertainment-related policies associated with this, is is sort of a specificity around um, 
needing to see that contract so that when that gear is rented, um, you you aren't just renting it a sort of willy-nilly. You're the AV company we represent. You're not w renting it to someone without a contract that clearly states once they take possession of that gear, they now have responsibility for that gear for all risk of loss um, immediately upon whatever the trigger method is. If it's when it's put onto a truck and loaded to the truck and it's heading to the show site or whether it's once it's delivered to the show site. Uh, but there's a clear delineation of responsibility that um, that we we insist upon with our insureds. And quite frankly, it, it protects our insureds so that they know, okay, I've turned it over to them. Um, they tell me that they're carrying the proper amount of insurance. They're advising me that my gear is safe once in their control. And if it's not, they're going to take care of the loss. And that's that's a critical component we even put into the contract language of the policy that you must have this. And if you don't, there may not be coverage for you because right. that's something we expect. So, um, yeah, it's it's critical. Contracts, contracts, contracts. I, I stress it. Uh, our industry used to be that it was pretty willy-nilly. Uh, as I said before, I think willy-nilly might be a technical insurance term. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's just a sort of, uh, was handshake. It was, you know, I've, I've worked for them for years and, um, uh, you know, I've, I've recently experienced a very, very large loss with one of my customers who was sub renting from some other of their customer, or some other customers, some of the gear that they needed for a particular show. Uh, there was an accident, the gear got, got damaged and including the gear for from the rent, the companies they rented from. Um, and, uh, in some cases, they have been doing business so long with those entities that there was no real specific contract in place. Mm. Um, and, you know, there was a concern at one point as to whether or not there would be coverage for that gear. Ultimately, we did cover it because we, we understood the nature of the relationship. But it was it, it made that large company sort of take a look at their best practices and, and say, hmm, you know what, we've become a little lax on contract requirement. Uh, we need to relook at that, and uh, it's a good example. It's a good, uh, a good reminder uh, of sort of what can happen. You know, we want our companies to be responsible for what they're responsible for, and and they're good, good corporate citizens, and they're good, um, uh, they're good customers, and we we want them to be whatever they're responsible for. We want to take care of that responsibility. Um, if it becomes unclear, though. Uh, just a good business best practice is make it clear um, because it can be and make it clear before an accident happens. Cause once it happens, oof. Yep. That's when things get ugly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So we, we've talked about the equipment side of insurance. Now I want to get to the staffing side of insurance and you've hit a key point kind of over the past 10 minutes with different scenarios about contracts. Um, mm -hmm. hand, handshake agreements, probably the biggest area where there's a lot of handshakes is, uh, booking, um, uh, freelance workers or independent workers or gig workers, uh, as they would say for the, uh, for the uprise of this gig economy. And so live events has always had a lot of gig workers, freelance workers, um, and that number is still just growing, uh, astronomically mm -hmm. in terms of the, uh, the scale. Um, how important, even though workers comp, you know, has some some state and federal 
a loss to that. I don't want to get too deep into that. I know you're not a, a lawyer and giving any legal advice. I don't want to don't want to paint that picture. But where do contracts fit into the uh, freelance world in terms of you know detailing out responsibilities? Because with state and, and federal uh, elements, you know, companies can try to write what they want their rules to be. You know, if anything happens, it's on you. But then, you know, the mm-hmm. federal mm-hmm. laws may say a different thing, especially in, like, say, in the workers' comp space. So, you know, from a, a contracts for freelancers, is it something you recommend when you're, when you're working with uh, gig workers? Or is it, you know, semi-irrelevant when it comes to the insurance side because it's more about what are truly the state and federal laws when it comes to uh, workers' comp? I, I'm impressed with the uh, with, with the the level of detail of your questions there. I think that uh, you have a, a a very good broad understanding of sort of some of the conundrums that occur in the industry, and uh, obviously you're you're well versed and appreciate the question. Thank you. Um, to your specific question, uh, uh, you know, I think independent contractors is a very prevalent common. Uh, uh, usage within the entertainment space. Um, and uh, many folks believe that if they hire somebody as an independent contractor, that I have a contract that clearly delineates, they are hired only as an independent contractor, not as an employee, that they um, uh, that they understand that I'm not hiring them as an employee, that I am paying them as an, I mean, they just make the language uh, very obvious. Yeah. Even with the tightest of contract in certain state jurisdictions, and I'm going to suggest, Wallace, that it's probably best to just assume in every state jurisdiction. If you are the hiring entity, if you are directing the responsibilities of what that individual is doing, whether they're an independent contractor or not, but you are, you are guiding their duties uh, while on site. And you should assume as an employer that you're going to be seen as the employer of record at that time, should there an accident happen. You should assume, even if they've provided you with evidence of insurance, that they may, that insurance may or may not apply. It may or may not comply. Um, For example, you might hire an independent contractor and say, the only reason that you're going to get on this job site is if you show me evidence of insurance that your company carries work on. And they do. Um, But then that policy gets canceled unbeknownst to you uh, because that individual didn't pay their insurance premiums. That individual gets hurt on your job after their policy was canceled. You're going to be responsible. Um, and your in your workers' comp is going to be responsible. So I suggest to anybody that's in the industry that hires independent contractors and think that they do so to protect themselves from that exposure, that potential liability. Um, I, I would I would suggest that they should not think that way. I would suggest that they assume that 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 uh, in in the worst case scenario they are going to be uh, the responsible party, uh, and it's their insurance that may respond uh, or may have to respond. Um, we have we have companies out there that are so clear on this. Uh, 
that they will actually load into their exposure base, which is payroll when you're talking about work comp. So they will load into their work comp payroll exposure base, the payroll associated with subcontractors, even if they're independent contractors. They'll load it in and sort of have us quote uh, the premium associated with that anticipated amount of hire that they're going to do over a given period of time. So that they're paying for that. They know that it's a potential exposure. They go ahead and they pay that um, because they, they, they realize they can't run away from it. Um, there, you know, the, the, the rules are, I think, across any state is that the states want to protect the worker. And the state, you know, from a workers' compensation perspective anyways, the states need to protect the worker. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's always going to go to sort of the, uh, that again, back to that thing, that employer of records. So, yes, contracts matter, but in this particular case, I don't know. You can have the most ironclad contract, and I contend it could be broken when it comes to a, uh, a work comp exposure, depending upon what it is. We, we've we've had customers. I mean, it, it's kind of maybe best by example. We've had customers who uh, independent contractors were assigned to them by the venue, so the venue hired the contractor, hired the independent contractor. But the contract language between my customer and the venue was that they will become responsible for the independent contractor. That independent contractor shows up on site and um, they get hurt. Our insured ended up paying the full freight uh, for what what for what their accident was. We you know, but they didn't even hire the person. The right. venue hired the person. You know, that can happen. Uh, another example I have is uh, you know we we had a, a customer who simply advised a uh, uh, an independent contractor who wasn't even really working on their job, um, simply advise them to do something, uh, move that over there, you know, move that from that spot to over there. And something happened as a result of moving that thing over there. Um, and because of that direction, because of that guidance, our insured ended up being involved. There's more to that story in, in, in a lot more detail. I can't, I don't want to go into it in, 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 in specifics, but, um, the, the point is, uh, the states are going to look to you as sort of the hiring entity, whether it's an independent contractor or an employee, as someone that needs to protect that worker. No, you, you brought up so many great points when it comes to the uh, workers' comp side of things. And one of the things you pointed out was a independent contractor's policy complying with um, a claim. And one of the things that I know is out there is there's various, you know, codes to detail what type of work you're doing um, as an independent contractor. And um, there is a code that speaks to the live event industry. I think it's a theater code. I forget what number it is. Um, but 9154. There you go. And so it's it, in that though, you know, there's a cost point of how much work you're doing based on the code you're doing and how much risk is involved from a policy premium standpoint and how they come up with that number. So um, have you found or seen or heard that independent contractors in our space pick a different code to lower their premiums? Um, 
Yes, I mean, it certainly, you know, attempts are made to, to do that. Um, and often, you know, we'll get applications from, um, let me let me explain what, what Take One is. We're not a, uh, we are a wholesale insurance broker. So we don't deal directly with the insureds uh, uh, all the time. In fact, really ever, we deal with the insured's insurance agent. Yep. So the insurance agent would come to us and they might put together a policy and they're not familiar with the space very much. And they might put together a policy where they declare, we typically see that you'll try and declare uh, some technician that might work uh, on, on a live event or an audio visual type um, um, entity uh, as low voltage electrical contractors. And, uh, you know, we see that a lot and then we'll look at it and we'll sort of realize, well, the work that they're really doing wouldn't qualify under that. It would, you know, that may be part of what they do, but really what they do is, um, uh, 9154 or the, uh, the, the sort of the theater code because of, and, and of course it carries a higher dollar, uh, rate charge, uh, against that 9154 code, um, uh, then say a, a low lo a low voltage electrical contractor might. Um, so there's there there are those things. Um, you know on on the on the whole, um, I, I mean, we probably look at, boy, I, I'm going to say thousands of applications a year. But you know let's let's make it simpler. We'll, we'll look at hundreds of them. You know in a in, in a in perhaps a six month process and and. Um, most of them understand that this space that we work in, this live event space, really does sort of fall under that higher class code. Um, uh, and, and so we don't see that effort as much. And, and companies understand that if they're, not, if they're not rated properly, they can be subject to fines. And, you know, most businesses want to avoid unnecessary business expenses like a fine by the Work Comp Bureau, um, uh, and they know it's their responsibility to properly code. So um, while we see it, I would suggest that we don't see it that often, I, you know, and, and that's a good thing. No, that is a good thing. And in a situation where if an independent contractor didn't have a right code, a company hires them, they get the proof of insurance, they see he's got, you know, workers' comp insurance, okay, something happens, they start the claim process. They send it off to his worker comps uh, company, um, and they come back and say, mm, "This isn't going to be covered under, you know, the code and what they're set up." Um, liability would then come back to the hiring AV company for that aspect. No, I don't think so. If okay. uh, if uh, if a company gets a workers' compensation policy from a particular insurance carrier, and the insurance carrier misclassified that um, worker or those workers, uh, they misclassified it. The real exposure is to the insurance company for not charging the right rate against the exposure. Um, but they would still be responsible. They, I would contend, the, they, the insurance company, would still be responsible for that injured worker. It's just that they didn't collect the proper amount of premium uh, associated for the real exposure because they didn't do the proper analysis and they didn't do the proper due diligence uh, of what the workers were really doing. So, no, I don't think it would turn around and come back to the AV company. Now, Back to my example earlier, though, if you hire an independent contractor and they provided you, even if you hire a subcontract, we don't even have to call it an independent contractor. We can call it a subcontractor. 
Mm-hmm. And subcontractors workers um, are, are higher, you know, they, they have their own workers' compensation uh, policy. And again, that workers' compensation policy um, becomes dormant because the subcontractor didn't pay their insurance premiums. And so there's no coverage, but that insured got hurt on your job. You are the AV company. Is it possible that it can come back to you because there's no other recourse for that injured worker? Absolutely. Um, that's why you got to hire the right people, right? I mean, so we wouldn't want AV companies to go out and hire the, the, um, you know, the, 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 the less scrupulous, uh, sort of entities out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, they have a responsibility and, and, and that responsibility can, you know, to hire the right people that might, might, uh, you know, pays their bills, understands what's going on. And, and, uh, uh, and does the right thing. I mean, it's, it's, I believe it's incumbent upon say our insurance to make sure that they're hiring the right people. One of the questions we ask, one of the questions we ask is, are you, you know, are you, will you be requiring that that insured, I'm sorry, that that subcontractor provides you with, uh, evidence of insurance, of insurance that names you as a, as a, an additional insured onto their insurance and that you validate their insurance. And so what they typically do is they get a, what's called a certificate of insurance, as you all know, they get a certificate of insurance and it explains the coverages and the carriers that that subcontractor has. I have this carrier for my auto. I have this carrier for my general liability. I have this carrier for my inland marine. Here's the policy numbers. Um, here's the limits that I carry. Our insured should take that certificate of insurance and send it to their insurance agent and say, hey, I received this certificate of insurance from a subcontractor I've hired for job X. Can you vet this information for me? So that insurance agent, their insurance agent who works for them, goes out and investigates. Does this carrier exist? Yeah. Um, because some people make bogus certificates of insurance. You can pull anything off the internet. How about to say it's just this, a PDF? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they, uh, you know, I think that's a best practice that they should get into. And for, quite frankly, that's what they pay an insurance agent to do is to, is to check these things out. And an insurance agent wants to do that to help make sure that the insured, our insured in this case, is protected as best they can. Now you can't, you can't really uh, protect yourself against all fraud, but you can certainly reduce the potential impacts of if if someone's trying to uh, uh, fraudulently do something with you. No, no, I think that's a great point you bring up as a best practice is you're already paying an insurance agent to protect your company. If you got certificates of insurance that are coming in from other vendors, use them to validate the information that's there. So that way, you know, they see best practices of what you're going through with the people you work with and you're utilizing them in their specialized market to, uh, to keep you protected and, uh, and safe. Exactly, Wallace. Exactly. Yep. Well, Scott, you have uh, shared so many great best practices today uh, with the audience when it comes to just being safe, properly insured, and best practices when it comes around the whole uh, risk management business of uh, working in live events. Where can folks go to find more information regarding this? Um, any particular websites you recommend? You know, there, there's, uh, there's probably more websites that I recommend associated with um, uh, looking at safety and, and other things. Uh, the Probably the first and foremost one that I recommend to people is to go to eventsafetyalliance.org. Um, eventsafetyalliance.org. 
Um, this is an organization that formed after the pretty much after the Indiana State Fair stage collapse, and it's an organization focused completely on live event safety. Uh, it doesn't matter the event either, whether it's a sporting event, a, a, a concert, a, a corporate event. It wants live event safety is is its hallmark. Um, and uh, the people that run it are are completely focused on industry education uh, about the facets of live event safety, everything from crowd control to uh, show site safety to severe weather action planning to um, um, just a, a slew of best practices that that they can come in. We've we've even had uh, um, uh, we've even talked about with that organization. Um, a drone safety, you know, dr drones are, are, are something that can easily fly into a, um, uh, into a live event site, right? And um, they're simple, they're, they're easy to operate. It's, it's amazing what the Event Safety Alliance uh, will get into. But from that, you'll also learn something called the Event Safety Guide that was written by or, or put together by the Event Safety Alliance, which is a culmination in one location uh, of live event um, safety protocols from things like the OSHA, uh, things like the National Fire Protection. Um, uh, and they're all in this one volume uh, that somebody can look at. If you're hosting a live event, um, you know, and it, it might talk about crowd control, it might talk about uh, things that you, you might not other, otherwise look at. So uh, I would strongly recommend that. And then I would look at plasa.org. Uh, P-L-A-S-A dot org uh, for uh, accredited standards for, say, things like rigging and um, uh, labor and other other areas of specifics that our industry gets into pretty heavily. So those would be two I would look at. Fantastic. Well, Scott, if people wanted to reach out to you and contact you after this episode to uh, get more information about you or take one and the things you guys have going on, how can they do that? Go to my website, uh, www.takeoneinsurance.com. Uh, the one is a number one, and insurance is spelled out. Um, you, can, you can find all kinds of information on there from white papers and other thought leadership that we do. We write blogs. We, uh, uh, we, we try and sort of stay ahead of the industry. Um, and my contact information is certainly on there as well. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you all for listening and watching. If you're watching us on YouTube and you can find other episodes on iTunes, YouTube, or on the avnation.tv website. And uh, we look forward to uh, hopefully having you back as listeners next month on the next episode of the live life.